Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you are involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to be talking about a very interesting organization that's been in the forefront of promoting a defense of free expression. My guest today is an expert on this topic. Suzanne Nossel is Chief Executive Officer of PEN America and a leading voice on free expression issues in the United States and globally. She's the author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Suzanne Nossel, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Great to see you. Thanks Great for having me. Appreciate you being with me today. Let's talk about your organization for a moment. What is uh, PEN.org? What exactly is it? What does it do? Sure, Penn, uh, we're a hundred year old organization. We have a mission to both celebrate and defend freedom of expression worldwide. So we carry out literary programming. We give out literary awards. We have festivals, we do public programs. We do programs to elevate and amplify the voices of writers, including particularly writers who are historically excluded from the public conversation uh, to allow them to become part of it. We have a big prison and justice writing program where we bring the voices of the incarcerated uh, into our public discourse by mentoring people, uh, helping to connect them with publishing opportunities. And then we have a robust free expression advocacy arm of the organization that does work here in the United States and all over the world on both individual cases of writers who are persecuted, prosecuted, terrorized, sometimes tortured and killed for expressing themselves. Then we tackle free expression policy issues, free speech and education here in the United States, disinformation, online abuse, the crisis in local news, and a range of other topics. We're a membership organization of writers and others in the literary world. So we stand on the shoulders of our 7,500 writer members here in the United States. And we work in solidarity with Penn organizations all over the world, dozens of Penn national organizations uh, operating in every region. Mm -hmm. And our viewers can go to your website at www.pen.org for more information or to become a member perhaps. Well, let's, we've got so many examples of suppression of free speech and writers and media people not only in the United States, but around the world. Let's talk about a few of these places briefly. Uh, we've seen for months that protests have gripped Iran. The women have been in the forefront of protesting the Iranian government. There have been tremendous crackdowns, arrests, some deaths. What, what is your organization doing to look at this particular problem and to help alleviate it? Yeah, well, we have been spotlighting the repression of freedom of expression in Iran for many years. We work closely with Iranian dissidents, with writers who are in country, with those who are 
in exile to put pressure on the Iranian government. We recently, for example, did a submission to the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, which is a arm of the United Nations that focuses on people who are imprisoned without a proper legal basis. And we put forward the facts of uh, about Iranian writers who are uh, being held captive with no legal rationale, without a proper trial, without an opportunity to defense themse defend themselves uh, on the basis of uh, illegitimate, invalid, spurious charges. And the UN Working Group did a very hard-hitting report. The Iranian government has now responded to that. And the Iranian government, we know, cares about pressure that comes from the United Nations. They you know, consider themselves, I think, in some ways above pressure from the United States or the West. They would pretend that doesn't matter to them. But when it's the whole international community speaking out, that has some force. So that is one tactic that we utilize. We work in the media. We just did a big joint letter where we got famous writers from all over the world to speak out in support of Iranian protesters, to call on the international community to redouble their support. We work on providing assistance to people who are in exile or trying to leave Iran if they need safe passage. We've also been dealing with the phenomenon of what I think of as the long arm of authoritarianism, which is uh, the Iranian government reaching into the United States to terrorize Iranian writers who have found refuge here, plotting against them uh, to kidnap them. Uh, there was the grievous attack on Salman Rushdie last summer, the fulfillment of a nearly 30-year-old fatwa against him. And so the reach of the Iranian government, unfortunately, is global. And there's a lot more that Western governments and other governments can be doing to safeguard Iranians uh, on their own territory. And so we're pressing for that as well. This is extremely important. And we could do a whole show on media or media malpractice of not covering these reports and not getting messages out, especially in the United States. It's just, it's really sad that the media coverage that is not there to help us better understand these issues. Well, let's move to another hotspot, and that's in Kyiv, in Ukraine. And of course, we've seen the devastation that's taking place there. You led a delegation of prominent writers who traveled to Kyiv to bear witness to the Ukrainian war, and you saw a lot more than just the war. What, what was going on as far as the Russians trying to suppress the culture and the history of Ukraine? Sure, we did a, we went to Kyiv to release a report on crimes against culture and efforts at cultural erasure as both a motivation and a mechanism of war. What Putin is after is to eradicate Ukrainian identity, language, uh, cultural cohesion, and the sense of there being a Ukrainian people and nation. And he has done this by attacking cultural sites, museums, libraries, theaters across the country, interrupting culture, putting it on hold. Uh, there have been dozens of publishing houses that have had to suspend operations uh, during the early part of the war. He has also, in territories that Russia controls, replaced Ukrainian language instruction and textbooks with Russian language, tried to impose uh, Russian cultural identity on occupied people. And so we wanted to spotlight this and draw the attention of the international community to these crimes against culture as part of what 
Putin and Russia need to be held accountable for as they wage this war. And what we found in the delegation was we saw sites of cultural destruction, uh, libraries destroyed, museums uh, bombed out, uh, filled with debris. And that was devastating. But we also saw so many signs of just a remarkable cultural resiliency on the part of the, the, the Ukrainian people. I mean, if anything, this has motivated them to double down on their culture. There was a brand new uh, museum ex exhibition that was opening up while we were there in December, uh, devoted to a famous Ukrainian cultural figure and philosopher and the museum devoted to him had been bombed and the statue of him had been uh, sort of strafed. And yet uh, that statue was put into a cultural center in the center of Kyiv uh, as sort of the centerpiece of this exhibition and a real statement that it was not destroyed, uh, it was bent but not broken, and that Ukrainian culture stands, stands strong. When we visited a bombed out library, we met a group of Ukrainian women who were Russian speaking, who were taking Ukrainian lessons in sort of the one intact room in this bombed out library because they no longer want to speak in Russian uh, in their homes or to their children. So they are uh, delving into the Ukrainian language and adopting the Ukrainian language. And so uh, Putin's crimes on culture are unmistakable and deliberate, and yet they have evoked this remarkable backlash in the form of a Ukrainian sort of doubling down on their very rich cultural heritage. It certainly is a very rich cultural heritage, and it looks as though it's one that's going to survive as of this taping right now. We wish them the very best. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer and you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very interesting organization that is working to be a really a leading voice on free expression. My guest today is Suzanne Nossel. Suzanne Nossel is the Chief Executive Officer of PEN America and a leading voice on free expression issues in the United States and globally. She is the author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Suzanne, we're talking about a wide range of issues in various parts of the world. And there are so many more that we could talk about today, but let's let's just talk a little bit about the United States. We've seen a tremendous suppression of free speech in this country over the past five, six years in particular. You just did a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. What, what exactly was the focus of your article and what is the gist of it that we need to go back and read the article if we haven't already? Well, my article was about social media, but if you're asking about what I think is the most alarming trend in terms of free speech here in the United States, I would have to spotlight book bans and what we call here at Penn, 
educational gag orders, which are legislative restrictions on what can be taught and studied in college classrooms. And we've seen more than 2,500 books banned across the country uh, over the last year at our last count. We're updating that count. Presently, we've seen more than 17 uh, educational gag orders enacted into law uh, in 15 states across the country. And this is a real resort here in the United States to government-sponsored, viewpoint-based censorship, where they're targeting specific books because of the nature of the narrative, because of the characters that are depicted overwhelmingly. What is targeted involves narratives focused on Black uh, and other people of color. Uh, and on LGBTQ identities. And so it's a effort to eradicate these stories from our elementary uh, and middle school classrooms, sometimes high schools, and then in colleges, focus on questions of how contentious issues of race and gender are taught. Now, these are issues that here in the United States, we ought to be able to debate. They are legitimate subjects for discussion. Uh, you know, people have genuine questions about what is the right age time frame to introduce kids to, for example, the question of gender identity. Should that be done? You know, is that something for preschool? Is it something for first grade or third grade or, or eighth grade? And that can be a discussion. Parents ought to have a say in that. Uh, the school should be receptive to dialogue on that, th these questions. But what is happening across the country is a resort to legislation to laws that dictate how this is handled, that suppress certain concepts. And it's having an intimidating effect on teachers, on librarians, on school administrators, where people are afraid to take on vital topics that our kids need to be able to learn about and discuss. So this is something that I find almost hard to recognize as an American uh, looking at my own country. And I, I, I do acknowledge and understand in many instances, those who promote these policies see them as a necessary corrective against whether they call it wokeness or orthodoxy emanating from the left. And you know that is a real issue. It's an issue we've documented and commented on extensively uh, here at PEN America. Some people call it cancel culture, but it is the sort of thunderous response you can get when you express a controversial or conservative idea on a very liberal college campus and you feel like you know, there's no space to voice your opinion, if one doesn't agree with the party line on an issue like reproductive health or affirmative action that you essentially have the choice to stay silent or render yourself a, a social pariah. And you know, that's a problem too, absolutely, but the answer is not legislative bans on speech, which is what we're seeing across the country. We certainly are. And from all indications, at least from the media coverage, it looks as though the governor of Florida is leading the attack on the woke culture war in this country, although there are many other states that are involved in it. What can be done to reverse this? I, you're absolutely right. There should be a discussion. Not everybody's in agreement on all of these books or all the philosophies and ideas, whatever concepts, values that are that are out there but there should be a discussion of them. And what role really does the state legislature or even a governor have in deciding? I personally don't want a governor in any state where I'm living to decide what I'm going to read. Absolutely. Look, what's tricky here as a legal matter is of course in public schools and universities, 
you know, they are under the control of the state, but we have very strong traditions that mandate that, you know, that role is budgetary. It's an oversight role. Uh, you know, those bodies hire the university presidents, they hire school superintendents, but that when it comes to the level of educating children and young people that we ask the professionals to step forward and do what they do best. We trust their judgment. We want uh, school teachers and trained librarians to assemble the collections that are going to be available to students in uh, the classroom or in the school library. They exercise discretion in doing so. Uh, they are employees of the state, but that is very different. That kind of curatorial function that we need educators to perform is very different from cherry picking certain books and pulling them off the shelf. And these are books like, you know, Of Mice and Men or Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye or Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Uh, these are in some cases venerated traditional literature, uh, books that have been treasured for decades that are being singled out because somebody thinks the subject matter is disturbing or they don't like the way that issues of race are being portrayed in the narrative. And you know that I think very clearly under the First Amendment is a form of viewpoint-based discrimination. Uh, and so there are legal challenges that are underway. Most people, one of the reassuring facts is that overwhelmingly Americans, no matter their political persuasion, don't like book bans. We don't believe in that in this country. We're uh, proponents of the of freedom of speech, uh, adherence to the First Amendment. And so pointing out to people that this is out and out censorship and that they need to speak out. It certainly is. And it, some of it is so ridiculous. You have certain uh, what I would call far right to be quite honest, arguments saying that, well, slavery was not presented properly instead of referring to Africans who were brought to America against their own will, free will, they should be referred to as guest visitors or something like that. It's just, I mean, it's almost nonsensical to even throw out an argument like that. Well, before we run out of time, so much here we could get into, but I just can't let Twitter go. I don't use Twitter, but it is a social influencer. It is very effective, I guess, to some degree for a lot of people who do participate in it. What do you make of the whole situation with Elon Musk and the Twitter platform as far as promoting free speech? I'd like to hear your remarks and I'll give you my thoughts on it, but how, how do you view that? Sure, I mean, that was the subject of the piece you mentioned in the Wall Street Journal uh, right. that was titled um, No Quick Fix for Social Media. And I think Elon Musk has learned his lesson. He seemed to go into taking over the platform, convinced that by simply sweeping away all of the content moderation rules and presenting it as a free-for-all, that he could inaugurate a boon for free speech, that there'd be all this uh, robust and open exchange. And what he found was that the platform became overrun by hateful speech, by uh, just a study that came out about this uh, uptick in pornography, child pornography on Twitter, that advertisers were fleeing the platform. And he very quickly had to backpedal and reassert content moderation and take a more active role in mediating and adjudicating what is uh, left up in, in Twitter's forum. And, you know, to me, that that's a lesson that many people, myself included, tried to tell him ahead of time that it's there are no simple solutions. There are no quick fixes here. Uh, there's trial and error for content moderators, for companies that are engaged in providing these platforms. 
regulators need to step in uh, and protect our privacy and ensure greater transparency on the part of these companies so that we have a better understanding of what's happening to our content, what ha what's happening to our data. We have a raging debate right here in the United States right now about TikTok because it's a company that is owned by uh, a, ch a Chinese owner. And in China, the Communist Party is entitled to requisition at any time any of the data that a corporation holds. There are no legal defenses for privacy. And so there's a lot of, I think, understandable concern about whether having uh, millions of American young people live out their lives on TikTok could compromise not just their own privacy, but even our national security over time. And so there are very serious concerns. There are no easy answers or silver bullets. Our only choice, unfortunately, I argue in the piece is essentially trial and error, that we should be viewing the states as laboratories, we should be viewing national jurisdictions as laboratories, uh, individual platforms as laboratories, and really uh, taking, making some experiments, doing some tests, evaluating the results, forcing the companies to release information that allows us to assess what is working and what isn't when you get to the, the ultimate quest, which is to mitigate uh, and minimize the harms of social media while still preserving what is valuable about it. Because social media platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, they build connections. They are outlets for free speech, for dissidents and human rights defenders and journalists around the world. They can be crucial channels to spotlight uh, breaking situations, matters of public interest and concern. And so, you know, you look at the earthquake right now in Turkey, uh, you know, it's being documented on social media and we're learning important things about what has happened, what the situation is. And so you want to preserve that value while tamping down on the harms. Mm -hmm. And we might also add that people can go to your website at www.pen.org and read more about this or become a member of PEN America. And another approach, too, is to contact your members of the state legislatures, the chief executive officers, the, the, uh, the executive branch, members of Congress, and give them your opinion on some of the looniness that's actually taking place in this country. And something is totally anti-American, as, as viewed in the eyes of many people. Well, in the last 30 seconds or so, what message do you have for our viewers to help us get a better grip on these issues and what we can do to help? But what I argue in my book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, is that free speech is not something that we can leave up to the courts and the lawyers. We need to, as citizens, claim our rights, defend our rights, uh, so stand up for other people who voice controversial opinions or are at risk of uh, seeing their free expression suppressed, resist book bans and educational gag orders. We need to take matters into our own hands and realize that free speech is the underpinning of a healthy democracy, and that if we don't stand up and defend it, we may lose it. Very well said. Well, Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you for having me. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.